As we round the corner from Christmas and start heading towards the new year, it's always a season for me when I begin to reflect and evaluate. Maybe it's the same for you. Start looking back on the year that's ending, the new year that's coming, and I start to think about the stuff that's happened and look toward the choices that I've made and the ones I want to make in the new year, the direction that my life is headed. And in that period, I think a lot of us start to make decisions. We start to make plans and we make commitments about our finances. We make commitments about our relationships, about our health and the habits that we have in our lives. And we often do this with the hope that it'll make us a better person, that it'll make, in some ways, our life simpler, or at least in some way it'll make our life more fulfilling. A lot of the times, (laughs) what I find a couple of months or even just a couple of weeks into the new year is that some of those decisions that I've made in my life have just simply added layers of complexity in areas of my life that were already overwhelming. Let me give you a real good example. I always tend to go this time of year to thinking about how I start my day and get this image in my head of how my day ought to go. And it starts with, I should get up earlier and I want to add a new discipline to my quiet time. Maybe this is the year that I'll start journaling, writing out my thoughts and I'll do it every day consistently. And then I'll work out for an hour because I'm up early and that'll be a consistent discipline this year and then I'll get to the office do all that and get to the office by 7.30 so I can work in the quiet and then I'll get home earlier in the afternoon all of these things I'm going to add to my life (laughs) all these things I'm going to begin when they haven't all been consistently true in my life over the last year or two or more. See, I, I think adding all those things are what I need to do in my head. We talk about a lot of changes in our life. We think that beginning things, adding things, is what we need to do this time of year. That that is the way that we'll get out of the ruts we've made in our life. The secret is beginning something. What if? What if the secret is not in beginning, but the secret really lies in quitting? Well, good morning. Glad to see you all survived Christmas in some shape or fashion. You're just quiet this morning. I think you're there. We'll see. Uh, So we're going to do this two-part series that I hope will get you thinking about a lot of things in your life that you want to quit. Uh, We can't possibly cover all of those things, so I picked out two, but I hope the principles that we talk about will apply to lots of areas of your life that will help make your life simpler and help make space for the relationships that are important to you including your relationship 
with God. Uh, This morning, I want us to think about complaining. And I want us together to make a commitment to quit complaining in 2016. And just a note, uh, as we jump into this, the program, if you've read ahead, says that we're going to do this message today and next week. Uh, That's a misprint. So I don't want you complaining about that at the end of the service. Uh, Complaining is one of those strange things in life. On the surface, it just seems kind of harmless, you know? Everybody complains, right? And so we kind of accept it, even though we wish that the people around us would do it a lot less. We just kind of accept it as a part of life. Everybody complains. In fact, studies tell us that the average American adult complains somewhere between 15 and 30 times every single day. Now, most of you would be hard-pressed if I asked you to just stand up and list the things that you complained about yesterday. You'd be hard-pressed to come up with them, to list many of them. You could probably list the ones the person beside you complained about, but not your own. We're hard-pressed to come up with ten. It's just so ingrained into who we are and how we live. So, in thinking about this message... I decided to go to the place where nobody seems embarrassed to complain about anything anymore. I went to Facebook. And I just posed the question to all my friends on Facebook, 800 or 900 or so friends on Facebook, and I just said, what is it that you're tempted to complain about? And uh, just right now, if you're tempted to go to my wall and see who those people were that responded, I've removed that post for the sake of those people who chose to respond, Um, because they were really honest. Um, Within minutes, people began to respond to the question, and some of them had this visceral response. Others of them just responded very uh, naively and said, I don't think I complain much, and then proceeded to complain. Some of them about people who complain. You know, but we all complain, and the responses were really, really interesting. We like to complain about the weather. You're going to have ample opportunity tomorrow to do that, from what I hear about the forecast. Some complain about politics, and it's a great year to do that with a presidential election coming up. We complain about bad customer service. We like to complain about our health and how it's going or not going. We like to complain about our family. And that gun should be fully loaded for all of us, given that we just came off of the Christmas holiday. We like to complain about our job. And here's the interesting thing is that sets up this kind of oppositional complaint because there were a number of people who liked to complain about their job, and at the same time there were people complaining because they didn't have a job. So they were like at odds with each other. Then there were people who complained because they didn't have children and they wanted them desperately. And there were others complaining about their children. So it seems like we ought to match them up and do a lending thing, you know? Same thing with people who complain about not having a spouse and wanting one and others who were like, seriously, give you mine, you know? You'll understand what a blessing it is to not have one. Uh, We also complain about our pet peeves, our things that just tick us off 
in life. Got any of those? Of course not. You're perfect. Um, We love to complain about people who talk too loudly in restaurants, right? And we always seem to get seated right next to that group. Or people who use a cell phone and don't seem to quite have grasped the technology and when it's appropriate to use it and when it's not. People who think that talking on a cell phone, if you yell, it will magically increase the volume, like it's going to press the button on the other end. And so they yell into the phone and they use that technique in places where you shouldn't use it. Like they talk on their phone in the quiet car on the train to Chicago, right? Or they choose to talk on the phone, in the doctor's office, despite the 50 or 60 signs saying, don't use your cell phone, don't use your cell phone. And then when they talk, they go into great detail about the illness that has brought them to the doctor. And why they're there. and it just makes you really uncomfortable that you're actually sitting beside them while they're talking too loudly on their phone. Am I complaining yet? In some ways, complaining has just become so ingrained in our culture, in how we live, how we communicate with each other, that we can just slip right into it comfortably, naturally. And we've become numb to the damaging effects it can have on our lives and on our relationships. We've become numb to the destructive potential of complaining. In Philippians 2, Paul blows the lid off the idea that complaining is not a big deal in our lives. Listen to what he says. Paul starts off this passage by saying, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Now, please understand, Paul is not saying work hard to earn your salvation. That is a free gift from God. But he's saying Because you're saved, it's a gratitude thing. You work hard to show the results, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Now that's a big setup for what comes next. And and Paul could go anywhere from there. I mean, what's he going to say next? It's critical, it would seem, what he says next, about our growth, our walk with God, what we need to do as a church. He's teeing up something really important. So it's fascinating that Paul chooses next to say, do everything without complaining and arguing. Some translations say without complaining and grumbling. (laughs) Got anybody in your house that grumbles? My wife lives with somebody that grumbles. It's me. Everything without complaining and grumbling so that no one can criticize you. Live clean and innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Complaining. Grumbling. Paul says it shows no respect for God. It shows no appreciation for everything that he's done in saving us. There are two very simple promises that God has made to us that are the through line in Scripture. 
They run from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. The first promise is this. We serve a good God who is taking us on a journey to a very good place. God is shaping every single one of us. He's changing us as He leads us from a life of brokenness to a full, whole, complete life in Jesus. That's the story of our lives. Paul puts it, puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Jesus as we are changed into His glorious image. We're on a spiritual journey as Christ followers. And God's plan is to help us grow, to help us change spiritually, to help us be more like Jesus every single day, to take us from here, wherever here is in the start of your journey, to there, being like Jesus. And that journey is good. That place He wants to take us is good. That's the promise. The second promise is this. While God is moving us to somewhere good, He'll be with us all along the way. The psalmist said it this way. God is our refuge and strength. He is an ever-present help in trouble. Ever-present. Always with us in that journey. Guiding us. Helping us. Jesus said it this way. The last words He said before He left this earth. I will be with you Always, even to the end of this earth. But here's what God didn't promise. God didn't promise that He's, as He's with us on that journey, that every movement from here to there would be an easy one. In fact, God promises lots of times in Scripture that the journey is going to be hard. It's going to be full of hard choices. It's going to be full of people that are challenging to us, difficult relationships, and challenging circumstances. In fact, the journey is going to be so difficult that if we don't hold on to, if we don't trust in both of those promises, we won't make it. We're headed to somewhere good, and God is with us in the journey. And if we don't hold on to those promises, lean into those promises, we won't make that journey to the end. And that's where the problem with complaining comes in. Complaining shifts our focus to the problems instead of the promises. Complaining draws our eyes to what we lack instead of where we're going. At its root, complaining questions the goodness of God and His promises. And if we complain long enough, it becomes a habitual way of life. Paul is the only author of of the New Testament books. He is the only one to use this word, complain. It's a unique word in all of the New Testament. And why that's important is it has the same root as the word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the grumbling and the complaining that the Israelites did 
when they wandered in the wilderness and they grumbled and complained to Moses. With one single word, Paul points us back to our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, and all the grumbling and complaining they did in the wilderness. And God had made the same two promises to them. He said, I'm going to rescue you from here, from this land of Egypt where you are slaves, and I'm going to take you to someplace good. He said, I'm going to take you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's just a poetic way of saying someplace good. And I'll be with you on the journey. And if you read the story, you find out that God was faithful to those promises all along the way. Almost immediately from coming out of the land of Egypt, they're confronted with a challenge. They're standing on the edge of the Red Sea. And they're pinned in by the Red Sea and coming up behind them, Pharaoh's army. God miraculously parts the sea. They walk through on a dry seabed, another miracle. They get to the other side and Pharaoh's army begins to cross. As soon as they're all on the dry seabed, God closes the water, wipes out Pharaoh's army without the Israelites lifting a finger. You'd think the Israelites would hang on to that visual image as a reminder, God's with us in the journey, right? Not so much. Just a short time later, the Bible tells us they're in the desert and they get afraid. And they start to complain to Moses. It's hot. Well, I mean, go figure. You're in the desert, right? It's hot. We're thirsty. There's no water. And so God performs a miracle and supplies them with water in the middle of the desert. You would think. This miracle of water in the middle of the desert, coupled with the killing of Pharaoh's army, would be visual reminders that would help them to see God's with us in this movement from here to there. God is with us. And they would remember and lean into God's promises, right? Not so much. Just a short time later, they complain. And this is my paraphrase of it. It's pretty close, though. And they say, we have nothing to eat. We're starving. I wish we were back in Egypt where we sat around pots of meat for free. <laughs> what, did, what did they do in Egypt? They weren't independent contractors. What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves. They didn't get anything for free except for subhuman treatment. Got a little twisted history going on in their minds. Which is part of what happens to us when we start to complain. Our perspective gets distorted. Nonetheless, God provides them with this bread that falls out of heaven. They called it manna. Just a little side note. They didn't know what it was that was falling out of the sky. And so they called it manna, which is a Hebrew word. When it's translated, it says, the word means, what is it? So literally, they were picking stuff up the ground, off the ground and going, what is it? And yeah, that's exactly what it is. What is it? And it was bread, not just any bread. When they tasted it, it tasted like bread coated with honey. It was really good stuff. 
another evidence that God's with them. Over and over again, God held true to his promises. And over and over again, they complain. They lose sight of God's goodness. They lose sight of his promises. And we get to Numbers 13. And the Israelites are sitting on the southern doorstep of the land of Canaan. There, the land of Canaan, where God was taking them. They're almost there. And Moses picks a team. Twelve men. Kind of a special forces group to go in and spy on the land. They're going to do a couple of things. They're going to check out the cities. They're going to check out the armies and see if they can conquer them. And then they're going to check out the land and see if it's fertile enough to support crops and livestock. And they're going to bring back a report. And if you know the story, you know that these guys come back and they give a full report. The land is incredibly fertile, more fertile than anything we've ever seen. That's the good news. The bad news is the cities are well fortified and they're huge. It's not the only thing that's huge. Here's the worst news of all. The land is inhabited by the descendants of Anak. Doesn't mean anything to us, does it? Anak was a giant of a man. Literally. For us, that would be like saying, everybody in the land is descended from LeBron James and he's the runt of the family. These are big, big people. You know the tragic part of the story? It's not the report that these spies gave. The tragic part is the reaction of the people. By this point, the nation of Israel is a million strong. They listened to the report, and here's what they did. The whole community began weeping aloud. They cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. Oh, if only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness. And they what? They complained. They complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives, our little ones, they're going to be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better just to return to Egypt? And so they plotted all night long. Let's choose a new leader. Let's go back to Egypt. Complaining had become their standard reaction. When they encountered a difficult situation, immediate reaction was to complain. To point to the situation and go, that's the problem. That's the issue. We're entirely helpless. We're victims in this situation. There's nothing we can do. When in fact, that all-night wailing situation, it really wasn't about Canaan. It was about their heart. The entire nation of Israel complained, and complaining led them to the resolution that it'd be better to go back to Egypt than to grow in their faith. And instead of trusting that God might actually use this scenario to shape them into who God created them to be. And we can do the same thing. So I want to ask you to do something right now. 
want you to think about the one situation in your life where you're most tempted to complain, where you actually complain the most. might take you some time to figure that one out. Let that question gnaw on you this week. Is it a family member you complain about? A friend? Is it your job, your lack of a job? Your finances? What is it? And what if, what if, instead of complaining about that situation, what if we were to all ask, how might God use that situation to move me from here to there? Because God is far more concerned about that movement than he is about that thing you're complaining about. That's what he's up to in our lives. It's never really fun to intentionally go digging for and exposing those ugly places in our lives. we keep those ugly places hidden for a very good reason. But when we start doing that courageous work in our lives, those parts of our lives that were once the source of our biggest complaint have the potential to become a place for us to trust God more. And it may be initially painful, but ultimately God is moving us to someplace good. And digging deep and finding the true source of why we're complaining is a necessary step in becoming the person that God created us to be. And it would be a tragedy to miss that. Because we're too busy complaining. In fairness, I need to tell you that not all the 12 spies sent into Canaan on that recon mission were complainers. Two of the men stood up against the entire nation, a million strong, as they whined and complained to Moses and Aaron. Joshua and Caleb saw exactly the same things as the other ten men. But they didn't complain. They didn't dispute the facts as they were reported. Their perspective was just different. Here's what they said. Joshua and Caleb said, look, we don't have to be afraid of the people in that land. They are only helpless prey to us. They don't have any protection because God is with us. So we don't have to be afraid of them. They chose 
rather than complaining, to lean into God's promises, to lean into his faithfulness. They didn't argue the report. They didn't deny any of the information that was shared. They just said, look, yeah, that's all true. It's just irrelevant. In light of these two truths, it's irrelevant. God is taking us on a journey to there. That's where we're supposed to go. And he's going with us. And because of that, we don't have to be afraid. And that should silence all the complaining. That's really the heart of this story. It's the story that Paul points to with one word, complaining. When he directly and simply commands us, do everything, everything in our lives without complaining or grumbling or arguing. Twelve people saw the exact same circumstances. Ten saw the worst possible outcome and chose to complain. Two saw all those circumstances in light of God's promises and they saw it clearly and they chose to trust the promises of God. It's a conscious choice that we all face multiple times every single day. So on this last Sunday of 2015, I'm asking you, will you join me as a quitter? I want to quit complaining. I want to be like Joshua and Caleb. Because it is a choice. And I don't expect this choice in my life to change the circumstances of my life. I don't expect to change my family. I don't expect it to change my friends. I don't expect it to change a lot that surrounds me in my life. I just want God to change my focus. I want God to change my heart. I want him to change the words that come out of my mouth. And I want him to change how I trust him. So that when I'm tempted to complain, I remember that it's God who is my strength and my shield. When I'm tempted to complain, I trust Him with all my heart. And I remember that He is the one who helps me. And He is the one who fills me with joy.